This is what I dealt with today. And it was only eight hours ago that, you know, I reached over into this cockpit of this vehicle and realized that the guy's head was missing. And he says, you know, you can't, you can't drink your way out of this. We're trying to break down the stigma. We're trying to share that there are great effective resources out there. But it's been proven, right, through the use of EMDR that if we can treat people quickly, that we can return them to work and keep them healthy. For every one police officer that leaves the profession, it costs that one organization $100,000. And I said to them, it costs about $3,600 to treat one responder for a full year. So I said, you make the choice, $100,000 or $3,600. Welcome to Respond to Resilience, along with my co-host, Bonnie Rumley, LCSW, EMT, and newly retired EMS captain, I'm David Dashinger. In this episode, we'll be speaking with former police officer and trauma-focused psychotherapist, Sonny Provetto, about tools to help responders to heal from their traumas. We invite you to catch all our past episodes by liking and subscribing to our YouTube channel, Responder Resilience. We're also on Facebook, Responder Wellness Inc., on bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast platforms. Our website with past episodes and show info is respondertv.com. We will be right back to speak with Sonny after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 dispatchers have symptoms of PTSD. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruption, substance abuse, and marriage problems. In this family, we can help the helpers with vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In this family, no one is alone. Welcome to Respond to Resilience with co-hosts retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Lumley, LCSW EMTB. We're very excited to have a great conversation today with Sonny Provetto. Uh, just to give you a little background on Sonny, he is an MSW and an LICSW, which is Licensed Independent Clinical Social Worker. And Sonny's also an EMDR clinician and trauma consultant for police departments and emergency responders across the nation. Through his experiences as a police officer and mental emergency mental health clinician, Sonny consults on issues of stress and trauma with police officers, firefighters, emergency responders, and their organizations, working closely with 10 Vermont police departments, fire departments, and EMS. Sonny's testified in front of the Vermont legislature as a subject matter expert on PTSD and influenced legislation which made Vermont the first state to recognize PTSD as a compensatable work-related injury for first responders. Sonny's also the recipient of the EMDR Advocacy Award for the Effective Treatment and Advancement of EMDR in Treating First Responders. And we're going to talk about that and also that he's created an EMDR group intervention specifically for first responders, which is currently being researched in the U.S., Europe, and now with the Ukrainian military. So a warm welcome to Respond to Resilience, Sonny. Great. 
Thank you to be here for for being here. This is quite amazing. I love the intro. Uh, as a matter of fact, got me thinking about you know my own mental health. You know, listening to the statistics and seeing, you know, our colleagues behind the dispatch panel and mm-hmm. uh, this work is so important. Well, it's great to have you, Sonny. Um, I thank you and I congratulate you for being such a champion for all first responders. Um, it's so exciting to have you here because we want to pick your brain about a lot of things. <laughs> Delighted um, to be here. <laughs> thanks. So I wanted to just rewind a little bit before we get into EMDR and ASAP and all of those things we want to talk about. Can you talk a little bit about your early career um, and how you, what led you to become a state trooper and then ultimately how that career path went? Sure. <clears throat> you know, uh, what's interesting, uh, my... Um, my pathway to law enforcement was really won by uh, by chance and and uh, and then opportunity. Uh, I grew up in New York City and uh, and learned to fish in the reservoirs, you know, in Westchester County, which are amazing and beautiful. And I went to a Department of Environmental Conservation meeting one night about making sure that, you know, we didn't. Uh, go to the bathroom in the reservoir, and that we didn't put motors on our rowboats, right? Um, and then the uh, the officer at the front of the, the room giving the, the talk, I went up to him, I said, how do you become, you know, like a, an environmental conservation officer? And he said to me, it's like being a game warden. And I, so this was in the late 1980s, and I went back home and got on this thing called AOL, maybe internet, I don't know, right? <laughs> and uh, began Googling, you know, all of New England and find out what municipality was going to give a civil servants test. And um, and I remember the 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 officer telling me it's a it's a civil service test, like a state troopers test. So. Um, you know, I looked at throughout New England. I didn't want to travel very far. And uh, Vermont was the first state that was offering a test within like two weeks. And I grabbed my best friend and he says, I said, we're going to Vermont to take a, the, the police test. He's like, I don't want to take the police test. I said, no, no, let's go to Vermont. You know, and we drove up and, you know, Vermont is so unique and it's so small and it's so intimate. Even, even you know, testifying in front of a legislature, it's not a full-time legislative body. You know, mm-hmm. people go home for their regular jobs for six months out of the year wow. and then are, are legislators for the other six months. Mm-hmm. So I'm in this room of about 100 people taking the civil service test. And then at the end of the test, the gentleman running the testing, you know, starts calling out names. And my friend Pat, his names get called and he gets called up to the front of the room. And the gentleman wants to usher these 10 candidates over to another part of this room because they were smart enough to be game wardens. So, he's, <laughs> so my buddy says, I don't want to be a game warden. He says, well, why are you here? And he says, well, my friend wants to be a game warden. He says, who's your friend? He says, Provetto. And the guy flips through a bunch of pages. And I'm probably somewhere in the 70 percentile. I don't know. So the guy says, you're not smart enough to be a game warden, but you're smart enough to be a trooper. <laughs> and I was like, great, where do I sign up? But my friend's looking at me and say, wait a minute, you well, you wanted to be a game warden. Now you're going to be a trooper? State trooper? I'm like, yeah, why not? And, and, and my career just took off from there. And it was amazing uh, that my personality fit the responder community so well. You know, and I didn't know that as a kid in my 20s growing up, you know, I was a knucklehead. And um, but, you know, what was asked of us as individuals, you know, the oath we we took, the bravery we we swore to have in the face of danger, like like this was my personality. Like, yeah, I can do this work. And, you know, my career started out, you know, really well. I worked hard like all of us do. Right. You try to become competent and confident in in what you're doing. And um, then I began to realize Holy cow, the first month out of the academy, I went to a um, 
to a tragic call where a whole family had died because their 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 furnace had malfunctioned mm-hmm. and everybody had died in their sleep, including two small kids. So here I am, you know, one month and not even on my own because I still don't feel training. And I'm standing, you know, in the hallway of this split level ranch in Burlington, Vermont, you know, in the midst of this whole family that had passed away. And I said to myself, Whoa, what do we do with this? Like, you know, if back in the day in the late 80s, there wasn't a lot of talk in the police academy about mental wellness. Right. right. Yeah. So uh, and what do we do? You know, we we suck it up. We don't show anybody that I may be affected. Right. Our training has perfected our ability to be task oriented in the midst of traumatic events. We can still perform. And this is one of the things that, you know, when I became a therapist, I've been able to kind of link together, like how our training, you know, is really one of our biggest protective factors against post-traumatic stress. So, you know, our careers go on, right? We work hard. uh, You know, we spend time away from our families. uh, We put the job in front of uh, everything else. You know, we want to make a career for ourselves. Um, And then the repeated exposure happens, right? You begin to now go to an untimely and then you have a SIDS death and, and all of a sudden you're in it and you're looking around. You know, when I joke about this now, when I, when I lecture, you know, I say, it's like, you know, and it's a bad analogy, but it makes sense to all of us. It's like drinking with your buddies. You know, we're all getting stuff together. Right. And we don't see how the trauma begins to affect us. You know, and and I think what had happened at, at one point in my career, so I started uh, recognizing that this was having an effect on me. I went to one of my lieutenants. I said, can I talk about stress and trauma at the academy? And only in Vermont, the lieutenant says, Sure. So, you know, I, I end up going down to police academy and being able to talk about it. But all my knowledge was like, you know, I found it in a book or on the Internet. And um, and I was always really physically fit. And I, I always knew that was a piece of it, but it wasn't everything. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, like it, it got to the point where uh, two kids died in a car fire and I couldn't get them out of the car. And uh, I began to suffer from something I didn't realize that was depression and uh was not myself and fortunate, you know, in Vermont, we had a clinician embedded in the state police, even back in the eighties and the nineties. Yeah. And, wow. and I had gone to Ken Kelly and I said, Ken, I said, I'm, I'm just not right. And he said, uh, well, you're depressed. And I was like, I'm not depressed. I said, you know, I'm working out. And, you know, like, like I couldn't understand what he was telling me. We didn't do a lot of psychoeducation. Right. Uh, I got on antidepressants and I can remember to this day exactly where I was when they worked. Uh, you know, I felt like my head came out of the cloud and I said, we have to do something about this. We can't allow ourselves to be exposed to this work and and not make our mental health a priority. And then shortly after that, um, I had a very bad fatality, a decapitation on the highway. And it was right on the same day I was supposed to fly to Florida with that same guy, Pat. Uh, and start my vacation. And because of the the magnitude of the crash, uh, we weren't getting the person out of the, the vehicle anytime soon. So my sergeant said, hey, why don't you grab that plane, go to Florida. You know, we're not going to extricate this guy till tomorrow and said, you don't need to be here. And I'm like, OK, great. Right. So you fly to Miami and your buddy's plane is late. And what do you do? Mm. The bar. Yep. And my buddy shows up. He's known me my whole life since I've been 10 years old. He says, oh, my God, this is what's gotten into you. Like, this is not you. 
And I'm like, well, you know, this is what I dealt with today, right? Today. And it was only eight hours ago that, you know, I reached over into this cockpit of this vehicle and realized that the guy's head was missing. And uh, he's like, holy cow. So, you know, and we, we brushed it off. You know, we went home, got some sleep. The next day we drove to Key West. Well, the next night I ended up at the bar and equally as intoxicated. And, and I was a mental health freak. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I was a physical health freak. And, uh, and all of a sudden, my friend starts to get worried. Pat gets, starts to get worried. And, and divine intervention. We're driving home and we start to get pulled over by a Florida state trooper. And I <laughs> look up at my friend, Pat, and I said, are you okay to drive? He's like, I don't know. And now I feel the guilt and the shame of putting my friend in this position because I couldn't control my alcohol. And the trooper walks up. And what caught me right off the bat was he didn't stay behind the driver. He walked right up to the windshield and turned around and looked at us. Hmm. And I noticed that to be like way different. Right. And he said, you guys know why I pulled you over? My friend Pat says, no, sir. And he says, well, it's pouring rain out. and You guys have the top down. And so my friend passes, yeah, because he's puking all over the floor, and uh, he says, "Oh," and he says, "Yeah, he's a state trooper." And the guy says, "What the hell's going on?" And I told him about my fatality, and and he was part of the Florida Highway Patrol peer support team. Hmm. Wow. What he says to me is, he says to me, "This is come back to my car, right?" So yes, sir, right? So I go back to his car, and he says, "No, no, you're not getting in my car." <laughs> and he reaches over to his duty bag, and he pulls out his card and he gives me his card. And he says, I want to see you tomorrow at five o'clock at the barracks that's next to the seven mile bridge. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, I'm going to escort you guys home. And he escorted us home. And the next day I got up and, and I was literally physically sick because I had drank all kinds of stuff. And I show up, you know, an hour early. And, uh, and the guy, I mean, God bless the soul, right? He had 18 years on. I had eight years on. And he said to me, he says, listen, man, that stuff will make you find yourself in the bottom of the bar- in the bottom of the bottle all the time. And he says, you know, you can't, you can't drink your way out of this. And, mm. and I took that to heart, right? And uh, I didn't drink the rest of the vacation. And when I got back to Vermont, I signed on to my computer at work. There was an email from the colonel that said, we're going to start our first peer support team. We're looking for volunteers, and I signed up. And that's my introduction mm-hmm. into really formal, um, you know, mental wellness in law enforcement. And um, it began to be eye-opening to me. That's, uh, that's such a, an amazing story, and, and it truly sounds like divine intervention to have gone down that, mm-hmm. that route, right? You mentioned peer support, and this may be jumping ahead a little bit, but Sonny, um, what kind of work did you do with NYPD and peer support? So, um, yeah. So, you know, what happens? Uh, so here I am, a, you know, I get retired, unfortunately, a medical retirement because of my eyesight. Uh, I, I parlayed my interest in mental health and law enforcement into going to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I graduate and a little bit of, I'm a little bit lost in my life. I'm 42 years old and this career that I love taken away from me. And, mm-hmm. you know, and 9-11 happened. 
Uh, and like, it was not, a, it wasn't even a, a moment of conscious thought. I just knew where I needed to be. And so I packed up all my stuff and uh, my cousin, John Prevetto ran the New York City cop shot program for at that time was 20 years. It's going on 40 years now. Wow. So I called up my cousin, John, and I said, you know, I'm coming down. Where do I go? And he told me where to go. And I got completely shut down by the PD. They wanted to know if I had a PhD. And I said, no. I said, you know, I have a master's in social work. I've done peer support for a number of years. Um, I'm CISD trained. And they said, sorry, we can't use you. Hmm. And so I'm, I volunteered at Ground Zero. Uh, and then it was six months later, after September 11th, that the um, NYPD posted a job posting in the back of the social work journal hmm. looking for a clinician with law enforcement experience. And so I applied and, and I got that position. And I worked through PAPA. And I don't know if you know what PAPA stands for. But PAPA stands for Police Officers Providing Peer Assistance. Oh. And it's a nonprofit. It's based down in Manhattan. It's out of 28 Broadway, uh, developed by the, um, the head of the PBA for the New York City Police Department, Bill Janay at the time. Him and his wife started this nonprofit in the middle of the 1990s because NYPD had a suicide epidemic, as, mm -hmm. as you know, they have had on and off for the last mm -hmm. you know, 30 years. Yeah. So. I began working with um, some seasoned clinicians, some people who had law enforcement experience. And, um, you know, for the first year or so, I went around to every precinct in the city and I did brief roll call trainings. Right. What a great idea. You know, everybody's lined up in a room. They're getting their direction from the OIC. Right. Whoever whoever their sergeant is, officer in, in, in charge. And uh, I, I swoop in and I and I had credibility right off the bat because I said, hey, I'm a retired cop. Right. And and I and, I, you know, I talk a little bit about my experience and, you know, talk to them about suicide prevention, talk to them about stress management, talk to them about trauma. You know, and a lot of what I was saying is that, you know, what you're experiencing, you know, from 9-11 ain't going to come out for a couple of years. So recognize that, you know, you may think it doesn't affect you at this point, but somewhere down the road, you know, maybe the excuse that makes it tolerable for you to ask for help. Mm -hmm. So I did that for about seven and a half years. And then you went back to Vermont. Yeah, well, there's a little piece in there. Okay. So, I, uh, so, you know, at one point I was doing a, a debriefing and um, I was so annoyed. With one of the people in the debriefing, I had asked them to step out of the room and we stepped out of the room and I immediately started to choke this person. Um, yeah. Something was going on with me. Right. And we know it's it's trauma now. Yeah. Right. So, you know, ignoring ignoring the fact that as helpers, we are also affected. Right. Uh, and then I went to my boss the next day and I said, hey, I, I need some help. And he said, why? And I told him what had happened. And, and he kind of downplayed it by saying how oh, he probably deserved it, as any New Yorker would say. Right. Ah, he deserved to be choked out of the group. Right. <laughs> and I said, no, Gene, uh, I, I need help. And yeah. uh, and so I, I went into therapy and, and I got help and I got I did psychoanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> what did I know? <laughs> you know and, and you know, over time, um, I was I was led to believe that that I was okay with my trauma, um, and then um, I felt like I had enough, and and I had retired. I and I moved back to Vermont, mm -hmm. um, and then that's when the story really starts. To be honest with you, so I moved back to Vermont as a farmer. I bought a farm. Mm -hmm. And I started farming. Right. So working the land, working hard. And these are all the things that I told people you need to stay busy. You need to stay active. You need to do things. So I, I needed a job that would enhance my self-care. Uh, and little did I realize that 
that farming was the most stressful job I was ever going to have. Exactly. You couldn't control the weather. You couldn't control the animals. <clears throat> Hard to take a vacation too, right? right. And totally different. Farming intervention happened. You know, um, I got called by uh, a, a chief of police who I had known his whole career and asked me to help out in a, in a bad homicide they had in Burlington. And so I had, um, you know, sprung back into action and, and realized how much I really loved this work and then really started create programming in Vermont. Uh, really, it's been now about 10 years where we have developed some really comprehensive wellness programs. Um, and that really is what lit the fire. Believe it or not, I think Ground Zero was just the training ground for me. Um, and you know where we are today and we'll talk about what we're doing today for sure. I unloaded 32 years of emotion. This job isn't a joke, and it can hurt you. How does yoga or meditation help with that? Coming to terms with who you are. You know, nobody calls us because they're having a good day. It's really the suicide that becomes a huge issue. People are more trustworthy with the dog. Sleep deprivation helps them either be better or worse. Completely secretive when we started this. So it's pretty much taboo. Take care of the people next to you first responders really being open about what they're struggling with. If we know that, let's raise awareness. Brings you together to talk about it, and it tells you you're not alone. No, that's really interesting. And I'm like you, Sunny, I'm a hybrid event. So trauma therapist, but also a first responder. And it gives you that really interesting perspective on yourself, too. You know, as much as we're helping everyone else, you made some solid points about what we also have to keep doing and filling our own buckets. Um, just to talk a little bit about what you're doing in Vermont, you started the Vermont Center for Responder Wellness, right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the center and what you offer there? Um, is it inpatient? Is it outpatient? Do you do substance abuse? Right. So um, so the center was born in 2018 after we had changed the law and people had made it quite clear they weren't happy with me because they felt that responders would take advantage of a presumptive law. And I, they said, how are you going to treat all these people? And I said, I'm going to open up a center. And, and, and I had just finished reading Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body mm -hmm. Keeps the Score. And I had said, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to create a facility where we can incorporate EMDR and biofeedback and yoga and uh, DBT and uh, intensive outpatient treatment. Um, and so that's what we did. And, and we put it all together. I'm actually in my office in the center. Okay. Uh, so we are a full service uh, facility geared and designed only for first responders. Um, we have everybody's insignia. It's decorated. It's a safe mm -hmm. space. It's kind of tucked away somewhere in the corner where you actually don't see the police cars or the fire trucks that are parked in our parking lot. <laughs> um, and one of the things when I designed the waiting room was I wanted people to leave offices and walk into the waiting room where everybody can see each other. And I felt like if we were going to break down the stigma, mm -hmm. we needed to design it in a way where people would acknowledge and accept the fact that we're all here for help and normalize that. So um, that's what we did. We are in going into our four, we're here four and a half years. Uh, mm -hmm. We're actually looking to expand. Uh, I now have seven therapists. Uh, we're all EMDR trained. Mm -hmm. uh, I have two yoga teachers uh, and I have two professional peer support, um, you know, mentors. So um, uh, 
retired first responders mm -hmm. who want to do this work, who actually go out on a daily basis and support all of our contracts. So we are proactive in checking in with departments uh, and everything from rescue squads to, you know, police departments and sometimes even medical examiners. Yeah. Well, I think that's excellent, and I hope that your model is one that we all follow across the country. Um, and what's really neat in listening to you talk, Sonny, is you were really ahead of the game, I think, with all of these thoughts back in the day when everything was beginning, um, and the fact that you were able to do so much, even the legislative piece. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you did there with the workman's comp laws in Vermont? Yeah, so... You know, in, in obviously treating responders, right, and noticing those um, who are so, uh, so trauma is an injury. I am speaking to the choir. Trauma is an injury. Those who get so injured where they recognize they can't work yeah. anymore. Right. You know, you know all the far-reaching negative effects that happen when you can't continue to do your job. You know, financial strain, uh, you know, feeling not good enough, all, all of the stresses that are associated with that. And then because trauma, you know, PTSD is a stress-related injury, you know, you can't even navigate normal life stresses. And so people's lives really begin to deteriorate, right, if they don't have, you know, the, the resources and the help they need right away. You know, and having been trained in EMDR and learning so much more about trauma through the EMDR lens, uh, you know, trauma, being trauma informed is really important. And that's the lens that I took to the legislature. You know, I, I testified. And by the way, I was asked to testify by state police union, uh, by legislators, like people who recognize that we needed to do something for our responder community. You know, and in Vermont, most of our ambulance corps are all volunteer. Right. right? So and, and we know that, you know, policing has the most resources and then you may have firefighting and then EMS like they're so unfortunately they're like at the bottom. They have the least amount of resources. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I advocated that the the I didn't I didn't write the law that gets written by these people. That's of their course. job. They write the laws. But, you know, right. I advocated that in, we know so much more about trauma. We know that trauma in the responder community is very different. And we know and it's been proven right through the use of EMDR that if we can treat people quickly, Mm -hmm. that we can return them to work and keep them healthy. And, and you know, we have to throw a number on it, right? For every one police officer that leaves the profession, it costs that one organization $100,000 invested in a new recruit before, and then it's eight months before we get any value of them because they have to go mm -hmm. to the academy and field training. So, and I said to them, it costs about $3,600 to treat one responder for a full year. So I said, you make the choice, $100,000 or $3,600. And so in the last four and a half years, actually five and a half years, if we think about when the law was changed, we have only treated seven responders. And for a number of reasons, we have proactive wellness programs, mm -hmm. right? So that's right. a big factor right there. Number two, out of the seven that we have treated who could not work, six of them are, are back to work. Mm -hmm. There's one person that chose retirement because they had 28 years in the profession. Yeah. So EMDR, we know, is effective. We know that when we treat responders with all of those modalities of, you know, using biofeedback and using mindfulness and using trauma work, um, we can keep them healthy. And then this is what brings me to the interventions that we've created, right? We know that if we fail to desensitize 
the most recent traumatic event mm -hmm. that we only sensitize our folks to the next traumatic event. And then again, the DSM five, right? Hold on a second. <laughs> Our Bible. <laughs> In 2013, like, like we were given a gift by the American Psychiatric Association. What they put in under the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder was they put in the repeated exposure mm -hmm. traumatic material is equally as damaging as you know intense and horrifying near death or serious bodily injury experiences right. and they use cops and they use the example of writing the aversive details of a child abuse case mm -hmm. on your computer screen so the american psychiatric association changed the category of post-traumatic stress, they moved it out of the anxiety category and put it in its own category under stress and trauma-related disorders. Mm -hmm. Because they also recognize that you can have depression and also have PTSD. Yes. So when I went to find out why they added first responders, and the, the second example is collecting human remains, which all you EMTs do all the time. Of course. Right? When I went to find out why they added that, they basically said, because of the nature of your work, Right? We want to draw attention of how harmful the work of first responders are to our mental health. Mm -hmm. and, and the Vermont legislature, there was, there was one legislature, I'm going to get it wrong, out of maybe 167 who didn't vote for the bill. Wow. wow. That's impressive. That's yeah. compelling. Yeah, you, you made it a, probably a very, very compelling case, yeah. um, as it sounds. And um, are you saying that um, cumulative sort of routine calls or calls that are, you know, a little bit sort of traumatic, but not like critical incident level calls, that a career full of those will have the same effect as, as one or more uh, serious critical incidents? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, it, it's a layering effect, right? And so mm -hmm. you can have one big intense call, call it a big trauma, right? And you have, you know, and again, we've been to all these calls, you know, um, an untimely death, like so somebody 99 years old and dies of natural causes, mm -hmm. but you have a grieving grandchild, you know, down the hallway and, and you remember the cries uh, of that child, right? Like mm -hmm. we understand it logically, Right. But we connect morally to those experiences. You know, I used to joke and it's not a joke anymore. You know, we see the worst in yeah. human beings, yeah. you know, and and we have to somehow brush that off. You know, the one thing that I always thought was so like unknowledgeable. Some people used to ask me, but you folks are trained to deal with this stuff. You know, and I always like scratch my head like, did I miss something somewhere? Like, where did we get trained to deal with a grieving family? I yeah, you're right. I think civilians think because you choose this that um, you're supposed to have some kind of a shield that protects you from all the ramifications. You, you, you know, exactly right. Exactly right. And, and you know, and, and what's coming forefront now, right, in, in 2020, 2021, is this concept called moral injury. Yeah. Right. So we're starting to explore this more and more and more. And, and again, you know, the, the moral injury is everything that that affects us at the core of who we are. Right. Uh, and that could be anything from I didn't do enough. Right. I didn't drive enough. Right. I wasn't able to save somebody's mm -hmm. life um, or I may have taken a life 
to save a life, right? And how do I wrap my head around that? And as trauma therapists, right, especially MDR based, we recognize that trauma is all about our ability to make meaning yeah. of our experiences. I, you're right about that. And I would say too, as a trauma therapist, with all of the shootings and the things that are happening in our society, it breeds more and more moral injury because how can you make sense of such senseless random acts? And I think we're seeing more and more as trauma therapists, the ramifications of that. So you bring up a good point. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and the sign of the times, right? Let's just talk about reality. Reality is, is that how many mass shootings do have you had in this year already? Yeah. You know, and, and when you put together, right, the concepts of a fan, like Highland Park, a family enjoying Fourth of July parade, and then to be a responder who's marching in the parade that has to spring into action. Yeah. yeah. How do you understand, like, like the, the cognitive dissonance between something that is supposed to be enjoyable and bring a community together that's totally ravished now by, by this horrific event. And I think that's what's making it more and more complicated for us as responders, and especially during COVID, right? Like now we lump on this added stressor. And I always, always kind of remark that stress is stress and stress is stress, right? It's all stress. It's traumatic stress, it's emotional stress, it's acute stress, right? It's chronic stress. When those other stressors are in play, my traumatic stress is not compartmentalized as well as I would like it to be. Fairfield County Trauma Response Team is a nonprofit alliance of mental health professionals dedicated to helping first responders heal from trauma, tragedy, and stress. We help as they manage community crises and the everyday demands of ensuring public health and safety. Established in 2011, FCTRT was formed in response to a call for emotional help from the Stamford Fire Department after a traumatic fatal fire. Less than a year later, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting occurred, and members again served the first responder community. Most recently, COVID-19 created a need for our support. We provide free educational presentations, pro bono sessions to deal with community disasters, and an extensive referral service to trauma-informed psychotherapists. If you're a responder in Fairfield County and need help dealing with duty-related stress, please reach out to us so you can continue to do the job you love. Visit our website at fctrt.org or find us on Instagram at FairfieldCountyTRT. If we could segue into the EMDR a little bit more. Um, So could you talk about ASAP? Talk about this new protocol, because um, for those of you listening, we trauma therapists, EMDR, we use GTEP, which is the group traumatic event protocol. Um, And that was formulated by Alon Shapiro. And so I understand that ASAP is an offshoot of that. Could you talk about it? Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, when I met Elon and I got trained in the GTEP and Elon knew that I had peer support teams that I oversaw, you know, he was gracious enough and, and brave enough to say to me, hey, go use this. If you need to change something, just let me know what you may be changing. So I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I was being given that authority. And so the first 
the first GTEP that I did back in Vermont was with six police officers and actually four social workers, right? And how can you mix social workers and police officers together, right? Because the other intervention that we have used in the prevention for, in the in the profession for so many years, the critical incident stress debriefing, really speaks to homogeneous groups. The GTEP allowed us to bring everybody who was involved in the in the critical incident into the intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was doing the first GTEP with with law enforcement, what they pointed out was one, uh, how you read it, right? So the mm -hmm. GTEP is read, you know, from the bottom right counterclockwise, right. you know, a little bit different than how we read in the United States. And, you know, this is not a, a knock on the GTEP at all. Mm -hmm. uh, Elon is Israeli and that's how they, you know, so the, his creation is a product of his, uh, his environment where he lives. And then we also realized that police officers were able to, to work through the recent traumatic, uh, traumatic event very quickly. Uh, and we saw a lot of people sitting around twiddling their thumbs. And, you know, when we debriefed the GTEP itself, we found out that it needed to be briefer. Mm -hmm. And so I made some of these modifications. I changed the order. Mm -hmm. uh, I also felt clinically it made more sense based on responder training, right? We have implicit memory, right? And our implicit memory, our training memory, our muscle memory, right, is already in a consolidated form of memory. So we recognize as the MDR therapist that this consolidated form of, mem of memory is already adaptive. Mm -hmm. So what I did with the GTEP is I took the first box, which is present safety. We made it the first one upper left-hand corner, mm -hmm. like we read, <laughs> who was familiar with us. And then I moved the pleasant memory into the second step that we do because we want to access, right, mm -hmm. a positive memory network. Mm -hmm. And then we offer the positive cognition next, right? So we do present safety, pleasant memory, positive cognition all before we do any trauma processing. Hmm. So the order is a little bit different than, mm -hmm. than the GTEP. And what I felt was that, one, we, be, we, be, we bring people into the present safety with our mindfulness, we measure the SUD, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a level of disturbance that they're experiencing before we do anything, after we do mindfulness. Yeah. We have them open up a positive memory network. We introduce the bilateral stimulation, the mm -hmm. core element of EMDR, so they get used to what the eye movements or the tapping may be. Mm -hmm. And then ask them to make the positive memory stronger by stimulating, right, the core feature of EMDR by stimulating the information processing between the emotional brain and the rational brain. And what, what you notice is the participants say, whoa, you know, I do see things a little bit clearer, or I do now hear something different or an addition to what I was noticing. And people are able to see that they have the ability to make the memory stronger. Mm -hmm. And then we offer them, this is the key right here. We off, and by the way, this is all given, this is credit to Elon. Elon came up with the adaptive ways of understanding yourself in the aftermath of the traumatic event. And they are just that. They're more adaptive ways. I know I'm going to be okay now. I know I can handle it. Learn from this experience. Mm -hmm. And then we have people choose them. And then we added a fourth box. And it's this an assessment box. And the assessment box was really driven and I have done thousands of CISDs. It's driven from our ability as clinicians and interventionists mm -hmm. to make sure that people are safe if they're going to partake 
in the trauma processing of the intervention. So the fourth box on the ASAP is an is basically uh, an assessment box, and it measures the SUD, right? So the subjective mm -hmm. unit of disturbance. And we put on there, right, zero to three, right? you don't really need to do any trauma processing, but we encourage you to stay and participate. Mm -hmm. Four to six, you're right in the window of tolerance, right, mm -hmm. where, where trauma processing may be uncomfortable, but it's not going to harm you anymore. Mm -hmm. And then seven or higher is where we want to make sure that, you know, we don't, do not harm you in this intervention. And then we take a break. And during that break, you know, we have refreshments and we mingle. So we have an emotional support team and myself. Mm -hmm. And we go around and we ask people, or we look at their worksheet, right? What that final assessment is. And for mm -hmm. those people who are seven or higher, we may do more stabilization work with them, or we may make a direct referral. Mm -hmm. So now we're giving them, like, they don't fall through the cracks. Yeah. Right. Giving them an opportunity to participate in the invention or we're saying, hey, listen, you know, usually it's me. You should call me tomorrow and let's talk about how we can move forward to make sure that you're OK. So the ASAP really acute stress adaptive protocol, mm -hmm. right, it's designed for acute stress. Uh, and we took 27 BLS processings and we moved it down to nine. OK, so mm -hmm. it's really a brief. It's almost like an EMD. Mm hmm. Focus. The interesting thing about the ASAP is, is that we actually ask first responders to notice their implicit training memory in the second trauma processing box. We ask them to step out of this call, mm -hmm. look at yourself from a thousand foot view and notice what you did during this call. Right. And, and what you have responders noticing is that, you know, and again, it could be Somebody can say the opposite, but respondents usually notice that I did everything I was trained to do. Right. Right. And and that adaptive already consolidated memory yeah. right, helps the more adaptive information processing. And then the other thing that's different than the GTEP is that we don't install the validity of the cognitive belief because we don't know if everybody has a very strong positive belief about themselves. Okay. So we just look at the VOC, right? We look mm -hmm. at what the measurement is and we look at what the SUD is, and then we provide further guidance on how to take care of yourself. Okay. And so a lot of that are things that um, obviously, because I do EMDR, I'm recognizing all the acronyms and everything. But to sum it up, this is a way to use the recent event protocol in a group setting and you tailor it more to first responders, which to me makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like the order that you're going in and even the second step of having them look at their training and compare their behavior, to me, that's the first thing that goes out the window when the first responder comes into our office. It's the first thing. They, they don't have the ability to look at all the good things they did or what they did right. It's always zeroing in on that negative piece. And I, that's the brain taking over and the trauma. But um, I wanted to ask you another question. So you're having ASAP studied in certain places. Um, do you have any studies going on in Connecticut right now? So it's interesting that you asked that question, right? So uh, <laughs> my, my dear friends and well-respected colleagues, um, uh, Dr. Paul Middle, who's a psychiatrist from Ireland, Mm -hmm. uh, and Dr. Derek Farrell, who's yep. a teaching psychologist from the UK. I've met him and too. 
Yeah, they have spearheaded the ASAP um, um, in the police service of Northern Ireland, where they have 25 trained uh, police officers uh, mm -hmm. administering the ASAP and the CISD at the same time okay. to different groups. And they're comparing the data. Mm -hmm. um, Paul, um, I'm sorry, not Paul, but Derek Farrell has been able to have the ASAP chosen to be used with the Ukrainian military. Mm -hmm. um, and write these dates down, by the way, because you're all invited and it's free. Uh, Paul Miller and Derek Farrell are coming to Vermont. We are going to hold an eight-hour workshop somewhere around November 21st or 22nd. Uh, and we are going to talk about, you know, the cutting edge practices using EMDR, both as an intervention and also uh, in treatment. Okay. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. We're always looking for control groups, right? So, you know, uh, we will be coming back down to Connecticut and, and training more people uh, in the ASAP. And by the way, the, the delivery system for training the ASAP is... Um, is done through uh, training developed by GIST, right? The Global Initiative on Stress and Trauma. It's called Traumatic Stress Relief Training. Okay. Uh, and GIST has been able to been able to incorporate all of the EMDR stabilization and grounding techniques, as well as, we don't teach it, but the Butterfly Hug Protocol. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you know, the, um, the, the GTEP or the ASAP, as we're calling it now. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's great. Thank you, Sonny, for being so innovative. Um, certainly, we all <laughs> we could all take a page from your book and continue to pushing forward in our work. It, it's very inspiring. Well, uh, you know what? I th thank you. I, I appreciate the compliment. I'm not good with compliments, you know, like we all are. Nobody is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the the idea that uh, you folks put time and effort into creating, you know, a, a professional, very informative platform for us to get our word out there is is really, you know, it's um, you can't overstate uh, the usefulness and you know potential of saving lives. You folks are saving lives because you're sharing this information. This is great work. Well, you're so. So pleased to be able to bring uh, someone like you who's uh, really doing amazing work out there. We are saluting you for, uh, for what you're up there doing in Vermont and uh, look forward to seeing you in, in Connecticut or anywhere uh, that you, you're coming through um, in the future. And um, just to let people know where they can find you out there, do you have any uh, social media or website places you want to share that people can look you up? Sure. Um, so we have um, we have a, obviously a website, the Vermont Center for Respond to Wellness. Uh, we have a Facebook page and Instagram of, of the same name. Um, Dave, please uh, uh, thank you for sharing it on the screen right now. I mean, my information is out there. People can call me directly. I mean, I, I would totally field a phone call from a first responder who is struggling and then try to find them resources in their community to totally help them. I've done that my whole career. Mm -hmm. uh, I get phone calls from Arizona to, you know, to Montana. So, um, you know, we're all in this together. Uh, and we really are a small community of people really trying to spread a word that really need to be part of the fabric of what respondents experience every day. You know, we're we're trying to break down the stigma. We're trying to share that there are great effective resources out there. You know, Fairfield County, Karen Alter Reed, mm -hmm. you know, like like the fact that you can talk about people who are out there um, doing this work is what responders are looking for. I mean, this morning I opened up my Facebook and I, I don't, don't know where this person is from, but they, the first thing they asked me was, how much are your services, right? <laughs> and that's the last thing I even think about, right? And, like, it's like, well, it's, 
how can I help you? Right. It's not about, it's not about cost. And by the way, you know, just let me just share that with you. The idea that we have first responder organizations that support the center and keep us open allows us to do a lot of pro bono work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's our commitment. Our commitment is to take care of our responders. And if, you know, I will do anything that's clinically ethical. And if you call me up from New Jersey and you're really struggling, it's not appropriate for me to do telehealth with you. It's appropriate for me to find you, um, you know, a trauma-informed therapist in your community so you can get the help that they need. Mm-hmm. Well, Sonny, it's it's really wonderful talking to you again. And I smell a part two down the road. So don't be surprised <laughs> if you get another call from us to come back on later. <laughs> well, I'd love to. And hopefully when I come on another time, if that's possible, I can share the, the findings of our research. Yeah, I would. we would love that. And I think our viewers would love to know that there's yet another tool that all of us therapists can use to help them. Great. Well, it's been our pleasure, Sonny. Thank you again for being with us and sharing all this amazing information. Um, and yeah, we do look forward to continuing the conversation eventually down the road. So uh, appreciate you coming on as a guest. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you all Sonny. for what you do. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Just want to remind everyone to uh, like and subscribe YouTube Responder Resilience channel. We're on Facebook, Responder Wellness Inc., bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the podcast platforms. And uh, you can find all our episodes on respondertv.com. So until the next time, stay safe, be kind to yourself. Take care.